evening. Please turn with me in your copies of scripture to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Tonight, we will see that love is kind. That's my text, all of it. Love is kind. At the beginning of the week, I wasn't sure if I was going to have enough to do a full sermon. And by the end of the week, I was cutting things. And I actually thought about doing Love is Kind Part 1. Um, because last week I just did Love is Patient, and nobody could be impatient with me for taking two weeks for being for covering kindness. But I'll only do one sermon, and we will make our way through quickly. We are making our way through one of the most well-known chapters in the New Testament. But Paul, if you remember, is in the middle of an extended rebuke to the church in Corinth. Chapters 12 through 14, he's acting like a patient father, showing his children how they're misbehaving. They had been ordering themselves in the wrong ways. They had been emphasizing wrong things. They had been unkindly treating one another because of their flawed views on the spiritual gifts. Rather than seeing diversity of giftings as a blessing for the church, dispensed from the hand of God himself, they began to see diversity as a liability. They were unjustly prioritizing, favoring certain gifts over the rest, disdaining those people who had less prominent, less flashy, less impressive giftings. But rather than this disunity and this unkindness, Paul reminds them about what love is. Love is what is to mark the body of Christ, and it is only when love is present and prioritized that a church of God can behave as it should. So tonight we'll examine just one small part of this glorious chapter. Last time we looked at how love is patient, or more precisely, love shows patience. We examined patience by first looking at God and how he is the prime example of what loving patience or forbearance or long-suffering looks like. It's only when he has worked in the hearts of his people and transformed their hearts that they can begin to be patient sons and daughters as well. Tonight we'll look at the next mark of love, which is kindness, but let's begin by reading the chapter again. 1 Corinthians 13, starting in verse 1. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but I have not love... I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and I have all faith so as to move mountains, but I have not love, I'm nothing. If I give away all that I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but I have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things. It believes all things. It hopes all things, and it endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. 
For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. Father, we ask that you would kindly be with your people. You would show us more of yourself through your word. Make us more like yourself through your word and through your kind and Holy Spirit. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So love is kind, or love shows kindness. It's a verbal form here. It's only used like that one place in the New Testament here. But let's begin by looking at kindness defined. Kindness defined. We might define it a number of ways. I could pull up Oxford's English Dictionary and just give you one off the shelf. But I think for our purposes, the clearest definition might be that Kindness is loving action flowing from goodness. Kindness is loving actions flowing from goodness. We might say that kindness is the overflow of good deeds which naturally come forth from a good person. Kindness is the positive outflow of a a good nature. It's a benevolent disposition towards somebody else. We might say that kindness are the hands and the feet that are moved by a good heart. A kind person uses their will to actively pursue the good of another. So a kind man will seek the good for his wife. A kind parent will seek the good of his children. A kind employee will seek to do good to his employer. A kind leader will seek the good of his subordinates. In terms of language, kindness and goodness in Scripture are very much overlapping terms, often used interchangeably, and I'll often do that tonight. But strikingly for us, the terms of kindness and goodness are most often used in Scripture to describe God, His character, and His actions. And that's the best place for us to start, by looking at what Scripture says about God's nature. Scripture is very clear. Yet God is kind, which is what we'd expect, because we know that he is good. God is good. And if God is good, then God will show kindness. If God is infinite in his goodness, then his kindness will then be all the more excellent. Consider some of the ways that scripture speaks of God's goodness. We can see it first in his creation. In the beginning, God merely spoke and he brought all things into existence. And then at the end of each of the creation days, what did God say about his creative work? It is good. The initial overflow of God's goodness was seen in the majestic creation that he had formed. The order found in creation, the harmony that it possessed, the beauty that was stamped all over it, all of it speaks to the goodness of the creator. But the goodness of God is seen in even sharper focus on the sixth day. And he created man. Unlike any of the other parts of creation, man was made in the very image of God. And when God stepped back and he viewed his creation of man on the sixth day, what did he say? It is very good. Mankind, the very image of our God, possessed an inherent goodness. Adam had a moral uprightness. He had the ability to express goodness to a greater degree than anything else created before him. 
He could commune and worship with God in ways that no other creature could. He could engage with God in good works. He could express creative ability and gifts just like his heavenly father. He could exercise good rule or dominion over the creation, working for good as the little image of God that he was. He could even imitate God's good creative acts by being fruitful and multiplying, spreading the goodness of God and his image all over creation. Goodness was to be spread all over God's earth to the praise of God's glorious goodness. But Adam failed to retain the goodness that he was given. At the request of his wife and under the influence of Satan's temptations, Adam covered the whole earth not with goodness, but with evil. He chose to violate God's law and choosing to take that which wasn't his, to listen to evil rather than God's good word. And as a result, death, the very epitome of evil's fruit, blanketed the previously good creation. And so now, instead of good fruitfulness, we have thorns and thistles. Instead of joyous procreation, we have terrible pain experienced in childbirth. Instead of marital harmony and communion, there's strife within marriage. There's jockeying for authority and rule. And instead of eternal communion with the fountain of all goodness, mankind is estranged from God, separated And death reigns. We feel this reign. We feel the consequences of Adam's sin every day. We feel the relational strife in our marriages. Churches like Corinth, churches like Morningview feel tension, division. We feel the conflict and the turmoil in our own hearts. Our allegiances are divided. We know what is true and right and good, and yet we still choose sin and evil. Anyway, the consequences of Adam's sin are universal. No man or woman escaped these consequences. Goodness has been masked, stifled, even outright rejected. So much so that the psalmist says in Psalm 14, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. He's talking about fools. He says they are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. We might say there's none who is kind. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, any who would seek after God, but they have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. The corruption of man is inescapable. Even though he was created from goodness, planted in a good garden, granted every good advantage, he rejected it. And now because of the rejection of God's goodness at creation, he is corrupted. Man's very nature is marred, it's perverted, it's curved in on itself, caring about its own sinful desires, its own fleshly passions. And we can see this in ourselves if we care to look. Ask yourself a question. Who do you really not like? Who are you really annoyed by? Who do you struggle to show kindness to? Maybe it's somebody that has sinned greatly against you. 
Maybe it's someone who doesn't measure up to your standards. They always disappoint you. Maybe it's someone who stole from you or slandered you. Maybe it's somebody who just acts like a fool and you can't stand it. Whoever that annoying person is, ask yourself, why do I not want to show them kindness? Why do I find it hard to love them? The root answer, if we dig deep enough, will lead us to the inescapable conclusion that I am not good. My soul is broken. My nature is corrupted. If I was like God, truly good like God, I would be able to show kindness to them. But I can't. I struggle. I don't like it. I don't like them. Why would I want to be kind to them? I don't even like to think about showing them genuine, unmerited, sacrificial kindness. So the conclusion is I must not be good. But the wonderful news of Scripture is that God is good. And his goodness is not only seen in creation. His goodness is also seen in redemption. Turn with me to Titus chapter 3. Titus chapter 3. Paul's writing to his young disciple named Titus. And he gives us one of the most succinct and glorious summaries of the gospel in all of Scripture. Titus chapter 3, starting in verse 4. But when the goodness and the loving kindness of God, the goodness and the loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us not by works done in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So Paul's telling Titus that God's goodness is manifested in his willingness to do a kind deed to people who didn't deserve it. His goodness is shown through his act of kind mercy to his people. His goodness is seen in him washing us of our corruption and our sin. His goodness is shown in his renewal given to us, making us right again. And he does that for a people who had rejected goodness. And the magnitude of God's goodness and kindness is gloriously displayed in the severity of means needed to procure it. He didn't just wave a wand and magically forgive us of our sins as if it never happened, as if it as if by pure sovereignty or decision he could just make our sin and our punishment go away. He is good. And one part of being good is that he has a necessarily just response to unrighteousness. He would cease to be good if he did not hate evil, if he did not hate sin, if he did not punish sin. Sin must be punished. It must be dealt with or God would cease to be the good God that he is. And here is where the goodness of God comes into sharp focus. His kindness, his disposition to work for the good of others, especially the undeserving, is most clearly seen in the price he paid for their redemption. 
Christ was sent, the eternally good Son of the Father, to be the atoning sacrifice for a wickedly evil and unkind race. Christ was the anointed one, the truly good Son that Adam failed to be. He bore all of the curse that Adam and his sons had earned. See, Adam brought forth the fruit of thorns and thistles through his disobedience. Christ took those and he wore them on his brow. Adam brought forth decay, corruption. But Christ was the Holy One who would never see corruption. Psalm 16.10 Adam brought forth disunity. He fractured the world. But Christ died to make a united body. Adam failed to do good for his wife, but Christ willingly was crushed for an unkind wife, a bride. Adam rejected all good in favor of evil, but Christ bore the evil so that we might be made good. We might be renewed. And what kindness is seen in God's work on our behalf? He not only served the undeserving, but at so great a cost that the eternally good would be punished instead of the wicked, that the the benevolent son would be chastised in the place of the unkind and the evil. Do you believe in this good news? That you can simply by faith have the goodness and kindness of the son counted towards you? That the consequences of your selfish unkindness can be taken away and nailed to the cross, never to be counted against you again. I hope that you believe it. I hope that you have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. But if you haven't trusted in this good God, then I ask you, why do you wait? What more would you need to hear? If this God is so good, eternally good, unchangeably good, how and why would you not give your allegiance to him? Any man that you might align yourself with, to whom you might give your allegiance, might seem good today, but he could change tomorrow. He could be wicked tomorrow. You might think you are good. But scripture has said the opposite. And your past experience confirms your own lack of goodness. You have lied before to save your own skin. You have spoken ill of others. You have gotten unjustly angry and impatient with other people. Your own evil and lack of kindness towards others is enough to send you to hell forever. And so I urge you, do not wait. Trust in Jesus. See how his goodness overflowed into the kindness of a death, a death given for the unkind and the undeserving. Sinners had nothing that they could contribute to him. They had nothing that they could repay him with, no way to improve him, and yet he came to help the helpless. He became nothing, Scripture says, a slave in order to save those who were themselves enslaved to unkindness and evil. Trust in this Jesus. Don't trample on his good offer of grace that is extended to you. Don't disdain the patience that he has shown towards you. Don't presume upon God's mercy so far in your life and think that he will necessarily be gracious to you in the future. Paul writes in Romans chapter 2, Do you presume on the riches of kindness 
and the forbearance and the patience of God, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? God's kindness is meant to soften your heart, to turn you back from sin back to Him. Don't let sin pull you away from God. Don't presume that because you have not felt consequences today for your sin, that there won't be consequences tomorrow. Heed Paul's words, trust in Jesus and you too can be forgiven of your sin and have your nature changed from evil to good. Have your actions transformed from selfish and wicked to loving and kind. And that's where we'll head next. Second point tonight is kindness commended. Kindness commended. If God does indeed transform us with the good news of the gospel, he replaces our old heart of stone and replaces it with a new heart of flesh, then what change ought this produce within us? In short, the Bible is clear that God's initiative-taking love working in our hearts will necessarily produce loving fruit in our lives, and one of those fruit will be kindness. But let's, let's break down this duty of kindness in a few ways with a series of questions. First, kindness to whom? Kindness to whom? Who is it that we are expected to be kind to? Well, as believers, Paul tells us in Galatians 6.10 that we are to do good to everyone, especially to those in the household of faith. It is especially to our brothers and sisters in the household of God that we are called to be good and to be kind. It makes sense. We share the same Heavenly Father. We've tasted of the same good salvation. We partake of the same Holy Spirit. Therefore, it's not only unfitting but harmful to both ourselves and the body for us to be unkind to one another. That's why Paul condemns things. He lists them out in the previous chapter in Galatians. Things like enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions. All the opposite of kindness. It also shows how terrible the sin was for the Corinthians to be unkind to one another in their own congregations. Indeed, how terrible a sermon is preached by saints. Saints who are saved by God, anointed with the same spirit, to instead quench that spirit through selfish and unkind behavior. We're called to kindness, especially in the church of God. But kindness is our duty not merely within the church. Our neighbors are also ought to feel kindness from us. But who is our neighbor? Jesus was asked that question in Luke 10, to which he answered the Good Samaritan. Sean preached on that a while ago, so I won't linger there, but Jesus' parable teaches us that a good neighbor is willing to show mercy and kindness to someone who's totally helpless and unable to return the favor. Even more than that, the Samaritan and the Jews were ethnic enemies. Humanly speaking, there would have been no public shame for the Samaritan to just keep on walking and leave the helpless man in his misery. The duty of love obliges us to show love indiscriminately. So much so that Jesus presses 
the question even further, and he makes us do something that is, humanly speaking, impossible. Jesus says in Luke 6 that we are to love our enemies and to do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. Christians are called to do what is counter to our fallen flesh, to show goodness to those who have nothing but evil for us. To bless those who have nothing but murderous curses to say at us. To pray for those who would harm us. Not even our enemies, not even the most annoying person, not even the person who slandered you, the one who's hurt you. None of them are outside of our duty to show love and good kindness. To whom are we to show kindness? To our neighbors, to our enemies, especially within the church. Next question, what should this kindness look like? What does this kindness need to look like? Or maybe a better question, who gets to determine what's truly kind and what is not? In a moment of moral relativism like today, that's a harder question. Is the practice of kindness, which everyone would commend, every unbeliever says, yes, you should be kind. It's on the little hearts of Valentine's Day. Be kind, right? Everybody says kindness is good. But is the practice of kindness malleable in its expression? Is it like a wax nose that we can shape any way we want? Certainly not. Our duty to show kindness or goodness has a specific standard which is God's law. Romans 7, 12 says that the law is holy and the commandment is holy, righteous, and good. The law is good because it is a reflection of the moral goodness of God himself. The law is a mirror. It shows us what God is like and what we ought to be like. We can look at it another way. The duty to be kind is implied by each of the Ten Commandments. Think about what Pastor Germani quoted. Paul commends in Romans 12, he says, Abhor what's evil and hold fast to what is good. There's a negative and a positive. It's not enough to just avoid the evil. We have to cling to the good. So, for example, you shall not murder. That commandment implies for us that we should seek the good for the other people around us. Saying that you are innocent just because you've never physically murdered someone does not absolve you of guilt. The command assumes that you will not merely refrain from murder, but that you will actively work for the good, promoting the life of your neighbor. You'll not merely refrain from slander, but you will speak the truth in love to them and about them. You not merely stay away from their physical harm, but you will promote their life in all the ways that you're able. And you could do the same with any of the other commandments. You shall not steal. Negative prohibition implies more than just not robbing people. That's a pretty low bar, actually. You shall not steal implies the Christian duty of generosity and charity. You'll not merely keep from theft, abhorring the evil, 
but you'll hold fast to the good, which is joyfully and generously giving to those in need, showing kind mercy. And so to answer the question of what kindness looks like, you simply need to look at the law. How is the law explained, illustrated, expounded in the scriptures? That's what kindness should look like. It looks like Jesus. It looks like what Jesus has done and what he has taught. It looks like what Paul has done and what he has taught. Next question. Why should we show kindness? Why should we show kindness? There's a lot of ways we could answer this question. I've already answered it a couple times, actually. Because we're made in God's image. Because that's what the law requires. Because we've been given the spirit of kindness. Many other possible true answers. Let me give us a couple of reasons that you may not have initially thought about. Why should we show kindness? Number one, to strengthen our protection. To strengthen our protection. I'm getting this from 1 Peter chapter 3, where Peter speaks in some Proverbs. He says, whoever desires to love life and to see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for doing what is good? Peter's saying that if you want to live a long life, you want to have a full life, do good. Be kind. You want to see old age? Be a good person. You want to be free from pesky enemies chasing you all the time? Then be kind. Do good. Who is there to harm us if we're zealous for doing good? He's not quoting axioms of absolute truth. Jesus was the most kind and good person to ever live, and he had an enemy. But these proverbs that Peter is quoting illustrate the principle that if you're evil, if you're unkind, you will make enemies. But if you're kind, you will make friends. And you will be protected. The more friends you have, the more protection we can have. There's strength and security that comes from many wise friends around us. Kindness strengthens our protection. Second, why should we show kindness? To bolster our assurance. To bolster our assurance. John, the apostle, makes clear in his first letter that love is a distinguishing mark of a true disciple. If you love God, and if the love of God is within you, then you will show love to others. And he specifically mentions showing kindness to a brother in need. In 1 John 3, he says, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for others. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees a brother in need, and yet closes off his heart to that brother, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or in talk, but in deeds and in truth. He says in verse 19, By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. How do we know that we're in the truth? We love our brother. How do we know we're saved? We're kind. 
One way that the Spirit confirms our assurance is by producing within us genuine love for others, especially kindness. If you flip that over, if you're never kind, if you're harsh, if you're cold, calloused, if you're demanding, if you're rigid and legal, then you should have no assurance that you're an actual Christian. Kindness helps to bolster our assurance. Number three, why should we show kindness? To earn heavenly rewards. To earn heavenly rewards. The Bible makes clear that there will be a time where God will call all people to account. 2 Corinthians 5.10 For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is his due, what's done his due for what was done in the body, whether good or evil. Good and evil will receive their due. That means that we will be rewarded for acts of kindness. Now, for sure, we don't take the promise of heavenly rewards as our exclusive motivation for showing kindness and counting up all our heavenly rewards as we're doing things. That would make us very lopsided Christians and turn acts of kindness into a selfish endeavor, actually. But it's not unchristian for us to consider that God will reward us for faithfulness in the realm of kindness. Jesus himself spoke of the final judgment and rewards in Matthew 25. He says on that day that the righteous and the unrighteous will be separated, separated with the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. He says in Matthew 25, 34, Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me in. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. And I was in prison, and you came to me. And the righteous answered him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? When, when were you thirsty, and we gave you drink? When did we clothe you? When did we come to prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did to one of the least of my brothers, you did it. To me, our showing kindness to the least of this world is showing kindness to Christ himself. And he sees every single act of kindness, even acts that no other human being will ever know. And he will reward every act of kindness. Now, sometimes we can really be aided in our obedience in our ability to be kind, particularly when it is difficult to show kindness to that one person by remembering that God sees your effort and he will reward you accordingly. Fourth, why should we show kindness? To fulfill our purpose. To fulfill our purpose. Paul says in Ephesians 2.10, for we are his workmanship. We have been created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We are God's handiwork. We're his workmanship. And we were made, among several reasons, to walk in good works, to do good, to show kindness. It's 
one of our primary purposes. We were not made to do evil. To bring harm. To show unloving impatience. We were not made to judge with harshness or to slander or to hold on to a grudge or to be bitter. We're not made for these things. We're made to do good, to be kind. And when we do anything other than that, we're cutting against the grain of creation, of how this world, of how our bodies, of how our souls were meant to operate. And so don't be surprised if your life stinks when you're unkind. Don't be surprised if your siblings hate you if you're an unkind person. Don't be shocked if you are lonely and isolated if you're unkind. We were made to be good. We were made for more, more than unkindness. We were made to be good and to do good, to be kind and to show kindness. Why should we be kind? To fulfill what we were made to do. Now, one final question. I've talked about all kinds of stuff related to duty and obligation, and some of you have that one person stuck in your mind that you know you should be kind to, and you really don't want to do it, and you're exasperated because the pastor hasn't said anything about how. How am I supposed to do this? How am I supposed to be good towards evil people? people I don't like, people that are my enemies, people that have harmed me? The short answer is that you can't. Not in your own strength. This type of kindness, Christian kindness, requires a supernatural source. But Scripture gives us the good news that God has offered to provide you everything that you need for every act of kindness. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 9, and we will end there. 2 Corinthians 9, Paul is specifically talking about Christian generosity, but in the middle of that section on Christian generosity, he makes a universal statement that is relevant to our discussion of kindness, and good works, doing good. 2 Corinthians 9, verse 8. God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. Notice how all-encompassing, how thorough God's grace is. All sufficiency, Paul says, in all things, at all times, in every good work. Nothing is lacking. No necessary grace is going to be withheld from you. God has promised all that we need to do the hard work of kindness. You may feel unfit for the task of forgiving and trying to be kind to that one person. But God's grace will be sufficient for you. You may feel like you'll, you'll never overcome the pain of their sin against you. You'll never be able to be kind to them again. 
God says, my grace is enough. It will be sufficient for you. You may feel like you'll never be able to endure that one really annoying person. God has promised you everything that you need. He is the source of all goodness and all loving kindness. Pray to him. He delights to give to his children what they need. He will sustain you. He will remind you through his word how good he is, how much he loves you, how much kindness he's shown towards you. And he will grant you the strength you need to overcome feelings of unkindness. So that we can all grow to be more like Christ himself. The kindest man who ever lived. Let's pray. Father, we do indeed ask that you would make us loving people. That you would make us kind. That you would help us to remember your kindness, which is the very fountain of all mercy and grace that we have received. Let us never forget the kindness we've been shown. Use it to send us out of here to proclaim your good news of kindness, your good gospel to those around us in this lost world. Use it as light to bring your people home. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. We're going to stand.